You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire. I'm an education and leadership coach working with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and that of all their staff. Um, I also run group coaching programs for women leaders and I do one-to-one coaching for leaders and women leaders and I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. Welcome to the show. Spring has sprung. It's absolutely beautiful outside here in the Easter holidays so I hope that you have all managed to have a well-deserved rest and that you've managed to enjoy the Easter holidays. If you are back at school, I hope you had a great holiday. If you're still on holiday, enjoy what you've got left. Today on the show, I have an interview with an absolutely amazing and inspirational woman, and it's Alison Creel. And Alison, I just absolutely loved interviewing her. She's a total and utter inspiration. She was the founder head teacher of Betty Laywood School, which she led as it grew to become a particularly successful school. And it actually became the most oversubscribed in the borough. And this led to her becoming an executive head teacher, where she led the school from the bottom 1% of schools to the top 0.1%. Now that is absolutely phenomenal. I'm just staggered by that by that statistic. It's amazing what she did there. And she attributes this success to staff well-being, which is just amazing. I mean, so she's she is my kind of head. And she talks about how the investments that they made in staff well-being actually made the staff want to come and work. And they retained staff and they had a really high attendance rate. And that's one of the things that she says helped them to be successful. She has now set up and she runs an organisation called Above and Beyond that helps schools, teachers, consultants, innovators and service providers to connect, to support each other. And I loved interviewing Alison and getting to know her a bit better She really believes in values-based leadership, authenticity and creating a feeling of belonging in a school. And I absolutely loved listening to her talk about how she did that. And I'm sure that you are going to really enjoy the interview with Alison as well. Before I go over to the interview, if you would like to find out more about the group coaching programs that I run, the one that we've got coming up is is now full, but I have another cohort starting in September. And I'm also running a 
new to the Head of English Role Group Coaching Programme alongside the Resilient Elements Leadership Development Programme with a previous guest on the show, Yamina Bibby. So if you're interested in that, do get in touch. Or if you'd like to join the Women Lead Well Coaching Network, do let me know. You can email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk. Anyway, here's Alison Creel for this week's interview. Enjoy. Alison Creel, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you. It's um, really nice that you've invited me to be part of it. Thank Excellent, you. and I appreciate you coming on. It's brilliant that you've uh, that you've agreed to come and join us. So, can you start by telling the listener all about yourself, a bit about your career, and what you do now? Sure. So, um, I was born in South Africa and spent my formative years. So, until I was. Uh, primary school age, I lived in South Africa, Botswana, southern states of Africa, um, and had a very politi- politicised upbringing because of, you know, the, the fact that I was born a Cape coloured during the apartheid regime. Um, and uh, things got very uh, challenging for us as a family to continue living in South Africa. And so we left um, under quite difficult circumstances and um, ended up in the north of Ireland. So I did some of my secondary schooling at a girls' grammar school there, which is really interesting. Um, And then we came over to England and I uh, did my A-levels in in Surrey. um, And, you know, was the only black in the village. So that was very isolating. It was actually felt more isolating than being in Ireland than the only black kid. Right. And then I uh, ended up in teaching by default um, because I wanted to drop, I wanted to change the university course I was on. And my dad said I wasn't allowed to leave university, but I was allowed to change courses. And so I sort of said, well, I don't care. And allowed the book to open where it did. And it opened (laughs) on teaching. And it was just like, yes, but this is what I really want to do. And I didn't want to teach because I felt like I was letting my family down. Um, because I come from a a, a background of incredible poverty. And and so I was the first person to go to university. And I felt that by going to university, I needed to do a sort of uh, what is deemed to be a more professional career. Um, And um, it wasn't, it it, it didn't make me happy. Um, And so I came to do teaching, Amazingly, my parents didn't try to make me change my mind. And as soon as I started that course, I felt like I landed. I knew what I wanted to do. I really understand this concept of teaching from the soul because it just felt like it came from within. Um, And I also knew that I wanted to be the teacher of the the silent kids in class because I was um, a very, very quiet child. Um, and often felt overlooked in every culture. So the one thing that I learned through my own schooling was what it feels like to not belong. Um, The fact that you don't have a right to be a silent child. Um, If you are a silent child, then they assume that you're a good girl working hard Mm -hmm. rather than having um, raised aspirations for you and challenging you in a different kind of way. And you clearly overshadowed significantly time and time again. And that went across every culture and then the whole experience of belonging 
was amplified for me by going to a girls' grammar school in Ireland and then um, my uh, the place, the sixth form in, in Farnham in Surrey. Um, so I always felt very displaced. Um, but learning to teach in London was just like joyous. Um, and I landed on my feet. I knew that I really wanted to work um, with uh, communities facing challenging circumstances. And I wanted to do my best for kids who were, whose parents had come on a big journey to um, allow them to have greater opportunities. Um, so I did that. Uh, when things happened in my first year, I became the face of the ILEA and they did movies about me. And um, that was really as a sort of recruitment drive. So that was interesting. Um, in my third year, I, um, I became a subject lead and uh, for maths. And then that led within, um, within six months, I became a deputy. I was a deputy for quite a while, loved being a deputy, had the person who was the head teacher was my NQT, role, um, NQT mentor. And she's also a real role model. She's just amazing as a leader. Um, so I then um, was her deputy for a while, became a parent, uh, didn't want to become a head teacher, got persuaded to become a head teacher, and then had uh, some headships and then eventually went on to become a CEO, loved headship. I'm going to interrupt you because you said something really interesting to me there and when I work with a lot of the women that I work with it concerns me that so many of them have that oh I don't want to know when I asked do you want to be a head teacher they'll say no no I don't want I don't want to be a head teacher and I think more women should want to be head teachers because women make great head teachers so what was it, first of all, that made you not want to be a head teacher? And then secondly, what persuaded you to do it? Okay, um, so there were two main reasons for not wanting to be a head teacher. One, I was I I, I really struggled to have children. And so um, when I eventually did have a daughter, I felt like it was really precious time and I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to lose out in any kind of way and I didn't yeah. want her to lose out. Um, and the second bit was that the local authority I worked in did recruit black leaders, but they also had a high dismissal rate. So I watched them take on 17 uh, black leaders and uh, 15 of them were dismissed in my time. Wow. For reasons which are not okay. And we even had a director of education, Gus John, um, who was focused and heart and soul there for the kids and for the community and all that kind of stuff. And he was, um, he was ousted as well. And uh, I knew that in the community that I was working in, I was valued, I was successful, it was a good school. I, I knew what I was doing. I knew that I could support the head teacher in her leadership work because she was not a conventional leader. Um, and so we, we, we worked well together. Um, and I, I just felt very anxious about stepping out um, for those two reasons. Um, and eventually there was a new school being built. It was the first school, first primary school that was being built in the UK. I'm, I'm gonna qualify, no, I'm not sure it's the UK, definitely in England um, since 1957. So this was a showcase primary school. It was the 
it was also going to be the first school to open in 2000. So it was going to be the school of the millennium. Um, and they went through lots and lots of interviews and they weren't appointing anyone. And the word out was they wanted a white man in a suit because at that point, the way in which leadership was being viewed was changing and this was becoming very DFE orientated. Um, and so I was persuaded to go for the interview because I didn't have a, a hope in hell of getting it. Um, because I didn't fit the image of a, of a head teacher. Um, and so I went in believing I wouldn't get the job. But you did. I did. <laughs> well, let's come back, let's come back to that then. And um, you were saying, so then you became a CEO. That's where we were up to in the before I rudely interrupted you. I apologize for that, but I was yeah, just interested. It's in okay. That. The bit I hated the most was the CEO role. It was right. just awful. You disconnected, you're not part of the community, you talk about money and statistics, and you actually don't give a damn about the people that you're working with. I, 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 because you can't, because you, you know, your, your focus is completely different. And I love being part of the community. I love leading a community. I love knowing the individual stories and being able to take pride in the journey that we go on together um, and all of those sorts of things. And uh, I hated going to DFE meetings for CEOs where I was constantly asked who I was representing um, and um, just being really othered um, and it was just it, there was there was no I, I I felt like I moved away from my purpose so and it was yeah so I didn't enjoy it. and that that just shows doesn't it one of one of the things that I talk a lot about when, when I'm doing the women leaders group coaching is the idea of purpose and your why and how important that is to you and that clearly means a lot to you how has that influenced you and your journey in in leadership all the way through my big question is if whenever there's a decision whenever there's a policy whenever there's a change um I all and I do this all the way through my training when I work with anyone and they they want me to go in and do a piece piece of work with them my question is always what's the why and if you tell me that you're doing it because it's centralized policy or someone has told you to do it or it's what other people are doing it that's when you stop being a leader and you become a manager and so I see myself as a leader so it always comes down to what's your core purpose here is it aligned to the values that you um, you live by? Um, can you see that it's making a difference to the community that you're leading? Um, do the community know why you're doing it? Are you working with them or are you working against them? You know, so if there is no partnership and all those sorts of things, then, you know, that's, that's not, that doesn't fit in with my core purpose. It's not it's, part of my why. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because you, you talk about, you know, what, what's the why and is it because somebody said you've got to do this or and I think in a lot I, I think that the the top down sort of you know high stakes accountability unfortunately it's created a lot of that hasn't it that schools are not thinking about their values what their why is what their purpose is sort of I always think like schools are almost they're almost like like people, aren't they? Or human beings. They're so unique in terms of their context and where they are and why they exist and their their you know their community and all those things that 
if you don't consider those things and you don't understand why that school is there and what it's there for, then you're never going to lead it effectively. But I feel like so often the shadow of the DFE Ofsted of, you know, constantly trying to improve results and thinking, oh, we've got to get a good Ofsted. And I've hated being in schools like that because my view is always, if you do things for the children and you do it for the right reasons, then when Ofsted come in, they will see a thriving school. They will feel that community and they'll know what we're doing here. But I've worked in too many places where you, the, the leaders in that school or managers, as you say, are doing things for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I'll come back with three things. I'm going to try hard to remember those three things. <laughs> so the first thing is, um, the reason why I got the headship was because I didn't go in there to try and prove myself. I didn't go in there to, to fit in with their model. I went in as myself. And um, when I got invited back on the second day, with two days of interview, um, and on the first day, I was the only black person, only woman being interviewed. No one in the room was black. It was a very isolating experience. And so when I got shortlisted to the final three, I was convinced that it was just to keep people quiet it was it felt like it was tokenism that was taking place it wasn't difficult to imagine what the final question was going to be about I knew they would ask me about vision and values because what else would you ask in an interview when you're recruiting someone for to be a founder head teacher um, so because I wasn't there to try and get the right answer for them I spoke to my vision and to my values, and I didn't give a damn whether it was right or wrong for them. It was saying, this is me, this is the type of leader I will be, this is the type of school I will lead, these will be the values that I bring to uh, the institution. Um, and that's what got me the job. So, um, and whenever there were tricky times, if anyone ever questioned, you know, leadership there are always going to be challenges and if anyone challenged me on anything um, in terms of my leadership I would always be able to go back and say but I told you what my values were I told you what my vision is I'm delivering the promise that I made to you and that's much clearer for everybody it means that you're not trying to fit in you know you're not molding yourself into someone else's agenda for me that is what leadership is about um, and it's a privilege so if you make a promise, keep it. Um, the second bit is uh, when I um, took on a turnaround school, um, it was rock bottom. I'd never seen such a broken school and it was heartbreaking because what was being said to that community is this is good enough for you. In fact, I initially went into four months. They asked me just to go into four months to gain stability in the school for an Ofsted um, because it was a school in crisis and they didn't then had a uh, head teacher for um, about three or four years. It was being run by the local authority. Um, and Ofsted came and by then I'd started to do little bits, not much you can do in four months, but I'd started to do uh, a few bits and pieces and also it was temporary. So I didn't want to do anything significant because I assumed that the new leader would yeah. come in and want to do what they wanted to do. Um, and But I started to do the safeguarding bits. And Ofsted said, um, we, th we think you're satisfactory. 
And I sort of said, but we're not satisfactory. This isn't good enough. This is, you know, if you say to the school, to the pupils and to the staff working here, that it's okay for them to be receiving this quality of education, then actually it's really wrong. It's unfair. You wouldn't say that in any other, you would definitely not say that in my other school, which was a very middle-class uh, school with a, with a powerful uh, parent voice. Um, and I can remember the Ofsted, uh, Ofsted inspector saying to me that they'd never, he'd never had um, an argument with a head teacher persuading them to downgrade the school never. rather than to <laughs> no. upgrade it. But it was, it's about integrity, it's about knowing what's right. And I mean, it was also the wrong decision because I did have some teachers there who weren't there for the, the, the children in the way that I wanted them to be. And they were kind of sort of saying, you see, we told you we were good enough. And that then meant that was a longer journey to try and bring around the changes that um, I um, wanted to then put in. After the Ofsted, the children asked me to stay and that's why I stayed. Um, and it felt like a privilege. So I did stay. And then I was put under incredible pressure from the local authority, the very authority that had run the school into the ground then put pressure on me to make it into a turnaround school in a year. I said, absolutely no way. I am not going to sugarcoat SATS results and put all of the resources that we've got into hot housing year sixes so that key stage two SATS results are okay and continue to offer a bad service to every other child in the school and every other member of staff in the school. I'm going to make you a promise. I promise I will turn the school around in three years, but it's going to be embedded so that we will have long-term change. And I can't tell you how often my chair of governors and I were called in, were humiliated with the, um, the number of times they came in and did their mock-off steads, the number of times they tried to undermine it, the, the, the pressure that I was put under was acute, absolutely acute. Um, and it actually led to me um, hitting the wall. I was doing stupid hours. I was averaging 90 hours a week. Um, it was, I know what it's like to, feel, to hit the wall. And I know you want to talk about well-being, but that's why um, well-being became um, an interest to me because I needed to get better. Um, and uh, I developed my understanding of well-being. So that was 2012. And I can remember Viv Grant, um, who was my coach at the time coming in, and we just had amazing SATS results. Um, uh, we had a 100% um, uh, combined for all of the children at age expectation. Um, and we also had um, extremely high pupil progress. Um, and uh, Ofsted came, had an amazing um, Ofsted, and Viv just said, why aren't you celebrating? You're the number one school in London, and I don't hear any joy in your voice. And I sort of said, we, we are celebrating. You know, I've, I've handwritten um, a, um, a letter to every single member of staff and to every school prefect, and I've, I've done everything to say thank you. And we took people out for dinner and all of this kind of stuff. And she said, but there's no joy, there's no celebration in you. And I realized then that I was detaching, I was perfunctory, um, I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't connected to my community. 
and leaders are about building communities and you can't build a community if you're not connected to a community so I realized I needed to get better and that was my journey into understanding well-being which has then gone on to become a key part of the work that I do um, so again standing up to um, local authorities to Ofsted and all of those sorts of people and keeping your promises, letting them see that you are there, you're committed to the community, you're ambitious for your teachers, you're ambitious for the, your pupils, you work hard, you're diligent, you have high expectations of everyone, but you're not singing the tune, you're not jumping to the tune that they are asking of you because they don't know your community. So do your best, keep your promises, um, and make sure that um, you have a community that knows that you want them to be successful and you're doing everything in your power to do that. And that kept me off the naughty step. And then of course, well, it didn't. I mean, I kept being called back in, but it meant that nothing terrible happened to me because they could see that I was keeping my promises. And yes, in three years, we not only turned um, into this high achieving, very successful school, um, but it also then became embedded practice. And I know it was embedded practice because from then on, until I left the school, we remained in the London top three. Um, so it wasn't always about, um, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't just a one year of amazing stuff. It was um, recurrent and we didn't have to teach the children in the same way because they were getting quality teaching from early years all the way through to year six. So I could see the impact of quality teaching. And then the final thing after I left the school and um, stopped being a head teacher, stopped being a CEO and all of those sorts of things, I founded Above and Beyond Education, which I hard launched uh, last month. And it is my, I wanted to leave a legacy and I wanted to do something where we could celebrate and connect and share and support each other without shame, collectively as educators, because most people within the profession come into the profession because they want to be, um, they want to make a difference because they committed. Nobody gets out of bed every day to go and fail children. Nobody does. Um, and but there's nowhere for us to connect and to celebrate and to share. Um, and so the platform is essentially to do that and to find people we can collaborate with and to find consultants and service providers and innovators who also have a passion to work alongside people working in school so that we can have dynamic, exciting, wonderful schools for all of, you know, the, the schools that our children deserve and definitely the types of schools that our teachers deserve to be teaching in. Before we find out more about the work that Alison does now, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. 
And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Wow. Well, does <laughs> I just I absolutely It's a long answer, sorry. <laughs> applaud you and I absolutely love what you're saying. One of the things that I always say when people say things, I've got about a million questions now, but one of the things that I think really strikes me in what you said is that idea of turning a school around in 12 months. And I've always been so opposed to that, that someone would come into a school and try to turn it around in, in 12 months and go, oh, well, look, after after 12 months, we've done this. And you talked about that sort of, you know, putting like hot, hot housing year sixes or my experience is that year 11s went through so many cycles of intensive intervention and what you were seeing, actually, you might have been seeing something in the results, but you weren't actually seeing a school that was developing from year seven or from reception or, you know, and, and having that, having things in place like throughout the school so that they're on a learning journey from the day they start till the end. And I think there's um, in schools like that as well, they end up in a, in a, when I've worked in a school like that, it's been a cycle of, really really hard work for year 11s and trying to push them all in year 11 and my view has always been come right back down to year seven and start the work there but then that is going to take like you're saying three four five years to embed those practices that you want to embed in small steps and I also think that when someone goes into a school and tries to turn it around in 12 months they hammer the staff so much that Mm -hmm. at the end of the 12 months or 18 months process the staff have got nothing left in them to to give anymore that they've been so browbeaten and beaten down and worked so hard that that their well-being is just at rock bottom and then you end up back at the start of the cycle again at some point because you're not going to sustain that and what I hear you saying is that change is I'm not saying slow but sometimes I use the phrase with people slow down to speed up because you've got to take a step back and you've got to think about what is it you want to do in this context what is going to work for us and that takes you a little bit of time to find out as well and then Mm -hmm. you put things in place at a pace that that environment or that context can can cope with and the staff that you've got can cope with and that's how you make a difference that that's what I think like the message that needs to be put out there is that you can't change a school overnight can you you can't and if you do it destroys the self-esteem of the learners and it destroys the self-esteem of the teachers Um, and my personal experience is we got great results not because um, we hothoused anybody, but because we really worked on self-esteem. So I really trusted my teachers. I really believed in them. They worked hard. They were fantastic, truly fantastic. I appreciated them with my heart. Um, And the children knew that they were being taught by people who were trusted, who were passionate, who were proud of the work that they were doing. 
Um, and we also work on the self-esteem of the children. And you know what? When you tell anybody they're doing a great job, do you know what happens? They do a great job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you constantly say, oh, you can be better, you can be better, it's just like, my, you know, I'm working so hard already. I haven't got any more to give. And then that means you end up feeling like you're not good enough. You know, that sort of real sense of um, anticlimax and failure. Um, and the other thing that I really wanted was I needed to be sure that when the children left us to go to secondary school, we taught them so well that they would just hit the deck running and um, continue on that trajectory through, um, through secondary school. And it was interesting how our feeder secondary schools asked to come back and see what we were doing because our pupils stood out in, so when we said the children were at the level that they were at, they really were at that yeah. level. There was nothing inflated. There was nothing massaged. There was no jumping in through hoops to, you know, keep the statisticians happy. It really was about learning um, and understanding and being able to apply knowledge and skills in a deeper way. So for me, it's greater depth. So it's greater, it's children learning at greater depth. It's teaching at greater depth. So not going fast, but digging deeper so that you've got firmer foundations. If you, if you just become slapdash and you try and teach things quickly on wobbly foundations, you know what happens if there are no foundations, everything crumbles. So that's why I dig deep, make sure the foundations are solid and then build up from that. One of the things that I always, I've heard said a lot um, by leaders that I've worked with and by people who I've coached, and it's that, you know, the children come first and I'm doing this for the children. And I, I wonder how you balance, like doing what's best for the pupils with not expecting too much of the staff. I know that you said like the staff work hard and staff will work, they will work hard when they've got something that they believe in and there's a, there is a sense of purpose and values and the vision's really clear. But how do you balance that, doing what's best for the children, but not expecting too much from the staff? As a leader? Um, well, I think the first thing that I, I want to um, acknowledge is the days of people coming into teaching for the holidays and for you know going out of the door at half past three with the children the, that doesn't happen anymore no. people come into the profession because they've got a passion they want to make a difference and you know there's so many arguments on social media about trads and progressives and all of those sorts of things all of those teachers want to teach all of them have a passion. Maybe they've got a different view about the way in which you teach, um, but everyone's got a passion. So we need to trust our teachers and not expect them. Do you know, uh, there's so much bureaucracy around holding teachers to account because we don't trust them to teach. Yeah. Just trust them to teach and they will teach. There are different ways to find out if someone is delivering. Um, and it doesn't have to be through millions of bits of paper, through the number of hours they stay. Someone was telling me the other day that they were, someone, their head teacher had a word with them 
because they'd noticed that two evenings or two evenings in a week, they were leaving at five o'clock. And she's like, well, just, and they were leaving to pick up their children, their, their child, their, they've got young children who are in daycare. And so she's obviously got shared parent, parental responsibility yeah. with the children's father. And so she did two days a week of picking up and he did three days. And she was being held to account for being responsible for our own children you know that's not okay and um I don't think it's children or staff a leader's responsibility you've got duty of care to your teachers and to your pupils and so I think it's about knowing them understanding individual circumstances and being as supportive as possible but it's also coming up with systems which are for the good of all. Um, so if you start taking care of your staff and you, you might sort of have agreements like, we used to have agreements around how to give additional PPA time. So we funded, uh, we, you know, we had the PPA budget and we funded um, out of that, but I knew it wasn't enough because I could see how hard everybody was working. Um, and so it was coming up with a range of different ways where you counted on the goodwill of team to collaborate on certain aspects of school life so that everyone could be given additional time. Um, whether, you know, things like report writing. Um, I used to give everybody report writing time and the quality of the reports were just staggering. But by giving every person, I think we gave everybody three days, it meant that I then had to say to the, the, the rest of the team, this is how we're going to do it. You know, um, if, we, if we start finding ways of using some of the, um, you know, we had a PE teacher and um, we had music and all those sorts of things. If we find a way of you doing that collectively over a two week period, the, the, the outcome of that will be, everybody gets two days or three days and they, you can sign up for the, the days that are going to suit you best. Um, and you, you're helping each other, but you're also helping yourself. Nobody ever said no to that. Nobody ever said no to that. You know, things like um, if we do a couple of extended staff meetings per half term, you know, where everybody, including support staff and catering staff and, you know, all of the ancillary team, if everybody stays until 6.30, uh, two afternoons per half term, it means we can have a, a slightly longer Christmas break. What do you think? Everybody did it. Everybody came. Everybody was supportive because they understood that um, we were investing in each other because we were all entitled to be able to work without being in a permanent state of exhaustion. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because one of the things that, that's striking me as you're talking is that investment in staff. And there is there is a monetary investment there, isn't there? There is a, you have to say, well, we are going to put this money here so that it pays for that and we can invest in our staff. But that works on another level then because the staff invest in the school, don't they? They invest in being part of that team. So by... Uh, and this is one of the things that I, I find frustrating about some schools is the lack of investment in staff, time for staff, development for staff to look after staff at the expense of 
then staff investing in the school and being committed to the school and unless you you have that investment that you make in your staff they won't invest in you in return will they that's completely right 100% agree with you so the more you invest in your staff however you can and their limitations of course their limitations the more the staff will take care of the children the more the children are cared for by the staff because they feel invested in, they feel happy and all of those sorts of things, the better the children do, because everybody feels good. But the other side to remember is recruitment and retention is really expensive. Um, Sickness is really expensive. So, you you know, we didn't have huge staffing turnover and uh, staffing attendance was always in the high 90s. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you because when you went there, wasn't staff attendance like 64% or something like that? It was that? really low. When I read yeah. that, I was like, oh my goodness, that must have been such a huge challenge initially to yeah. be working with like a third of your staff off every day. You know, people yeah. are talking now, aren't they, about COVID and how they've got this number of members of staff who aren't in. And for you, mm. that must have been a, such a huge challenge. So how did you manage to turn that around and get it up to, like you said, it was over 97% then? Well, I believe in a model of appreciative inquiry um, in for turnaround. And appreciative inquiry means that you look to see what's working well And you then use that as leverage for bringing around change rather than looking at everything that's failing and then making people feel like they're failures. So when you tell people they're doing great things, then people do great things. Um, And uh, I also was very clear with the staff about my expectations. We came up with definitions of what great teachers looked like, um, what great middle leaders looked like, what great dinner ladies looked like, working with individual staff teams. so that they were writing what the ideal was and then they knew what they what the benchmark was in terms of their performance um and to be fair when people realized I was there I wasn't going to go away that I was ambitious for the school that I knew it was a community of really talented children whose parents wanted them to become um significant in terms of the global community, uh, you know, globally and locally as well. They wanted them to be self-sustaining adults. Um, So that meant that we needed to work with those children in a particular way and be ambitious, as ambitious for them as their parents were. So um, the staff then realised that meant business. And the ones who were committed to wanting the best for the children were the ones who stayed, and the ones who didn't were the ones who chose to move on and then um, the big challenge after that was finding great teachers Um, and I had a lucky break within a couple of days of being there where a teacher behaved in a very very unprofessional way and talked about the children as being animals and um, just didn't care about them and she was a supply teacher and I, um, it, it, was, it was horrific. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. And the fact that she could talk about children being animals in front of them, especially, was truly heartbreaking. And when she said it, I looked at her and I kind of, sort of said to her, are you a supply teacher? And she said, uh, yeah, um, but I've been here for two years. And I sort of said, okay, um, 
So what I want you to do is, you know, I, is that your bag over there? And she sort of said yes. And I spoke very calmly because obviously the children were watching. Is that your bag over there? And uh, she sort of said, yes, that's my bag. And I sort of said, well, what I'd like to do right now is to take your bag and to leave us. And you're not going to be getting any more of this children's money. And she stormed off to the door and that. And she then again sort of said, you'll never get anyone to teach these animals. And she stormed out and went off. Um, and then I was left with that. And then I got the um, TA who was there, who was permanent to, um, I established she was permanent. And I sort of said, just go and tell everyone what I've done. And she went off. And so news spread that I was there and I wasn't going to put up with that kind of behaviour. Um, and then I went through a very difficult it was about six weeks of different people coming along to teach and they weren't okay. And the one thing that I knew was having someone that was okay and no more was a road to disaster. I needed someone to come who had a passion for teaching, who wanted to be part of turning the school around, who wanted, um, who wanted, who was ambitious for the children. Um, and people came and went, and I can't remember how many times I was called in by the governor sort of saying, well, you know, parents are complaining because there's supply teacher after supply teacher coming. And me saying every time, we could make do, but it's not good enough for the children. It's not good enough for the children. And then eventually this uh, teacher who was actually having a very, very bad time in her school asked if she could come for an interview. Um, and I sort of said, of course. And uh, she came for interview. And it was a terrible interview. She was monosyllabic. Um, it, and it, it, it was just a disastrous interview. But there was something about her. You know, you can feel that someone's great. And so I told her the story about the class. And I sort of said, I'd really like you to teach the class for me. I'll come back in an hour. What would you like to show me? And she said she'd like to do a literacy lesson. And so I left her. And by now, you can imagine this is a class. We're completely off the rails. Um, and I went back into the class after an hour and she had them eating out of her hand. And the lesson she taught them was fun and dignified and the children loved what they were learning. And there was just this teacher-pupil connection, which was beautiful. Um, and so she then became, she was then able to model excellent teaching for me. And she set the benchmark for everybody that we recruited from then on. And I never, uh, I would never take a risk and take on someone who was okay. I always knew that, um, I always knew the teachers I recruited could definitely teach. It's a, it's a hard, it's a hard place to be that, I, I guess, where, you know, if you're in a school that has a poor reputation, poor quality teaching, it's really difficult to get the best staff in, isn't it, to make mm -hmm. those changes. And when staff look at schools that, I'm not saying that the behaviour is perfect and the children, I'm, I'm not talking about middle-class leafy suburb schools, but schools where the leadership is really good and there's a really cohesive staff community, then people want to work in those schools, but it's hard to go from A to B there, isn't it? It's hard to get from that. You know, it's so difficult to recruit when you're in those difficult circumstances to get to that point of having staff who yeah. want to come and work in your school. There's always a shoe that fits, you know, and the teacher that I took on, the woman called Nicolette, who I still think is the best teacher I've ever seen in action. 
Um, and she's so shy and she's so rubbish at interviews. <laughs> she is, but she can teach. She can absolutely teach. Um, and she can teach any age group. That was the other gift to her. In fact, she then became the person in my school who mentored everyone who was new, um, irrespective of what their, their teaching experience was, because we obviously, you know, schools have an in-house model of teaching and um, she's got it. She's very giving and she could share. And she also knows what it, you know, I can't tell you the number of people I took on who were maybe deemed to not be successful teachers in another setting. And they would come, I would see them teaching and I knew they could teach. And maybe what they weren't doing was maybe following some of the sort of really boxy rules that some schools have got and maybe having judgments about non-teaching uh, rather than teaching. Um, and so, yeah, we ended up being a, a group of people who all had a story. Um, but I, I think that if you are in a school and the shoe, you don't feel like you fit, you're in the wrong school. So go and find a school where you can fit. And if you are a school that is attractive, you know, if you're going out of your way to get the, so the people who are great on paper, but who don't necessarily get your community, then you haven't got a shoe that fits there and it's not going to work out. And it's not that they're bad teachers. Mm. They're not the right teacher for that school. Mm. So just keep looking for a shoe that fits. It's, it's interesting that as well, isn't it, that we, <laughs> we make judgments on whether someone will be, will be a good teacher from asking questions in an interview and expecting someone to be able to perform in an interview and actually, that's not what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis, is it? You're going to be... One of the things I really like is people who are going watching teachers in their own schools as part of an interview process and actually, you know, seeing what that person is, is like. I mean, like you're saying, if you're not in the right place, you might not be teaching as well as you could be. But it's much better to give people who are coming to get a job in your school an opportunity to show you what they can do in that teaching environment, isn't it? I'm really interested in the, the appreciative inquiry because it's something that I've, I've really felt quite passionate about in that a lot of the time we're working with people on their areas of, or we might, might call them weaknesses, our areas of development, but so often we're not working on the areas of strength and actually that when you work on areas of development, that's when people flourish because they, they develop those things that they're particularly good at. Like, for me, I'm a very creative person. And if that's, you know, nurtured in me, then, and I'm allowed to be creative, then I do a much better job than if someone's expecting me to be really organized because as an ENFP, I'm not particularly organized. And it's something I have to really focus on, but I wouldn't enjoy it if someone said, right, that's all you're going to do now. You're going to have to focus on your organization and get that up to scratch. Mm. I could do it, but I wouldn't enjoy it it wouldn't bring me joy. I wouldn't be feeling passionate about it. But when, you know, when you say sort of what's working well and you use that and you say to people, you're doing a great job, how do you make sure that that's not disingenuous? You know, that you're not saying to be like, if there are people who are not doing a good job, how do you work with them? I think what I'm saying is it's hard. If, you, if you're struggling to identify the things that mm. someone is doing well, you know, if they're that, person who's not wearing the right shoe so to speak mm -hmm. how how do you go about dealing with that it's breaking the it's breaking down what they do well nobody's failing in everything 
So it's actually looking to see where their success is and really capitalizing on that and boosting their self-esteem so that they recognize they're doing it well, making sure the community knows that they're doing it well so that they can then lend those skills to others because we all have different strengths. And for me, my, I had a really amazing leadership team. We were very different. And some of them used to drive me crazy because their profile was so different to mine. But I recognized that if I didn't have them as part of the team, then we wouldn't have been um, solid as a whole. And it's the same with your staffing group. So if you know that everyone's got their strengths and everyone's got their weaknesses. So if you say that someone is doing something well, don't do it in a sort of disingenuous way. Really make sure you understand that they are doing it really well. Um, give them the opportunity to then go on develop, developing it so that they become stronger and develop expertise that they can share with others. And then as you're building their self-esteem up because of that, they will then start taking risks on the things that aren't going so well. And we did this with the children as well. So when we talk about which children are clever, this is something I feel very passionately about. When we talk about children who are clever, what we mean is children are good at English, maths and science. And that's rubbish because, you know, yes, there are people who are clever in English, maths and science, but it doesn't make them the clever kids in school. And I think that every child has the potential to reach greater depth in something. And it's our job as educators to find out what their greater depth is and then to capitalise on it. So for us, we had a very complicated timetable um, because we wanted to know, in terms of what, the, what their special, in terms of knowing what the children's special skill was or what their, their talent was, we called it knowing their goal. So we would talk to the children, talk to the parents, teachers would be looking out for those strengths because there's nothing worse than um, year sixes or year 11s going off on a field trip and finding out who's got leadership skills and who's got great empathy and all of those sorts of things or who's really good at music and dancing and um, scenery and putting on productions and all of those sorts of things you don't want to know what children are good at when they're leaving you want to know what they're good at while they're with you so that they can contribute those school those skills to the community to make your community even better um, so we used to celebrate what everybody was good at and we used to give those children enhanced opportunities to, to reach greater depth in their special skill, whether it was music or art or all of those sorts of things. And the consequence was that if you had a child who was really good at, so for example, um, in reception, when the children are really, really little, you can see who the Lego builders are. And often what happens is you take the Lego away from them. No, you've got to do your reading, you've got to do your writing and you break up their Lego models and it causes heartbreak and all of that kind of stuff. You can say, I can see you're really great at Lego. What can we do with this skill? And then you build on it and build on it. And that led us to doing incredible projects with the children in um, mixed age groups where they would do town planning and they'd work with architects and they'd go to iconic buildings. So we ended up with this group of children who all wanted to be architects. Um, that, was their, that, that was their ambition. And that included black girls. You don't get many black girls who want to become architects. So it was capitalizing on those sorts of skills. And then the more you worked on that type of creativity, 
those children took risks in their writing. They took risks in their maths. And the more you take risks in your learn, learning, the faster your rate of improvement. And that is how we got the results that we did. We worked on self-esteem and on helping children to reach greater depth in their special talents. I love that. And then does that mean that as leaders, it's our job to identify the talents of our staff and the strengths Absolutely. of our staff and do this, do the same thing with them? I mean, I say so often that what a lot of teachers or leaders forget is that children and adults are just humans and what we do with the children usually works with with the staff because at the end of the day we're just all human beings and it's it's a it it feels like a much I I I will always say you know my core value is kindness and compassion and it feels like a much kinder approach to take with staff to focus on developing strengths and talents rather than always you know using weaknesses or areas for development as a stick to beat staff with absolutely and the other thing I I found worked better I tend to do things in a sort of back to front kind of way so I still do what's required but not necessarily it's very rarely in a conventional way so with appraisal and staff development and all of those sorts of things um you have to go back to your why there um and uh, I found that when I said to teachers, if you know you're going to do a brilliant piece of teaching, let me know. I'd love, I'd love to come and see it because then we could work out what was brilliant. And then you could sort of say, okay, so where do we go from here? And they would then sort of say, well, I'd really like to develop this, that and the other. So then you talk about their own professional development to become even stronger. Um, and of course, if you've got a teacher who's very strong in something and they know they're really strong, they're not going to have poor standards in anything else because they want to be as professional as they can be. Um, and uh, it meant that I could then, we could then formulate um, performance management targets out of that. And the targets that staff set were much more ambitious than anything I would have wanted to ask of them. And nobody ever missed their target because they could see that was investment in them. And the more, and then that investment was more than amplified throughout the whole school community. The children gained, other staff gained, the teacher gained. And that sounds like, um... People can't see this, but it's actually going dark as we're speaking, isn't it? And I, I, I am probably sitting like half shrouded <laughs> in darkness here. So I hope that you can see me. I'm going to have to get up in a minute and turn the light on. Um, but that that sounds to me like a really good model for supporting staff well-being as, as yes. part of, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but as part of a whole school approach to well-being is to really focus on strengths and make staff feel good about themselves and actually build their self-esteem and not make them feel like they're always under scrutiny for something but actually that you're looking for the good stuff and that they're being recognized for what they do well yes so for me well-being uh at the heart of well-being is developing self-esteem if people feel good about themselves um then it'll it, it really impacts on how you feel 
um, you you being well. And then the other thing is belonging. So uh, belonging is my probably my biggest passion. Um, and it's at, at the heart of EDI, uh, equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, and it's um, if people feel like they belong, they come as they are, they accept it for who they are. They have the opportunity to shine, and to feel successful and to feel valued um, and to matter completely, not just for the few hours that they're in the classroom, but to truly matter as human beings, um, then they, they, will, they, they will be okay. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not such a fan of the term well-being, but I do believe in being well. That's a really interesting, I think that is a great place to end this interview and ask you, because I said at the start, I had lots of questions that I had written down. <laughs> and as per usual, I didn't really ask any of them. So will you come back at some point in the future and talk to us some more? Because I think I've got so much more that I want to explore with you in terms of DEI and well-being that, you know, I would love you to come back and talk to us again. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. I, I have just found you very inspirational, Alison. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. You've not committed to coming back yet. <laughs> I will. I'd love to. It would be a real privilege. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay. Me. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you indeed. I want to say thank you so much to Alison for that interview. There was just so much wisdom that she shared and she's such an authentic and genuine person. I can totally see why staff in her schools really loved working with her and why they wanted to work for her and why they were enthused by her as a leader and how she managed to achieve such changes and, and made those changes sustainable. So thank you, Alison, so much. You are an absolute inspiration well that's all we've got time for today as i said at the start you can get in touch with me if you're interested in the group coaching program i'm going to be hopefully having a couple of interviews coming up with some of our past participants on the group coaching program so that would be amazing and if you want to do the head of english new to head of english group coaching program get in touch with me as well because that is going to be absolutely brilliant with the running it alongside the resilient leaders elements program so vicky at weleadwell.co.uk is the email address that you need i'd love you to join our facebook group it's the we lead well facebook group you can just find us on facebook or follow us on twitter it's we lead well pod c one if you just search we lead well podcast you will find us and i am also on linkedin as well if you wanted to pop on there and have a look at me my credentials and read a bit more about me you can do that so if you want to find out about any of the coaching that i offer get in touch with me and i will happily have a chat with you so have a great easter holiday if you're still on easter holiday if you're not I hope that you can get outside and enjoy some of this lovely, lovely weather that we are having. So take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. And I will speak to you next time.
This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.